Jesus' first miracle demonstrates that God has saved the best for last in Christ and that his transforming power brings great joy. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. You know, there is an expression I'm sure you've heard, and that expression is not the message. The expression is, there we go, saving the best for last, right? Saving the best for last. How many of you like to do that sometimes? Like there's a, a meal, you're having a great meal, but there's this one part you really like, you save the best part for last, right? Right? That's why we always have dessert. Desserts always last, right? We save the best part for last. Now, it may not be the best for us, right? But it's the best tasting for many of us, right? Saving the best for last. Well, today in our scripture passage here, we're going to be reading about Jesus' first miracle. He performed many miracles, but we're reading of the first one, in which we'll see that in Jesus and in the new covenant in him, God has indeed saved the best for last. We're continuing now in our series here on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, looking in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, from water to wine. And here is the key thought. Here is the key thought that I want us to take away from this today, is that Jesus' first miracle demonstrates that God has saved the best for last in Christ and that his transforming power brings great joy. You know, before the coming of Christ, God had expressed his grace to God's people. He had given his law, but it was not until Jesus came, the Messiah, that we truly saw the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of his blessing and the fullness of his transforming power in us then who believe. So before we look at our text in John chapter 2, I just want to talk for a moment here about the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. How many miracles did Jesus perform? A lot, countless, you might say. It was a lot. Well, hundreds and thousands, certainly, that he did uh, with all of the healings he did. And, and so there were many, many miracles that he performed. But if you go through the gospel texts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll see there there are about 35 specific instances that are recorded for us in Scripture, specific instances of miracles that he performed. But of course, there were many others then that we know that he did as well that we're just told generally of. But of these then, we're going to look at this first one here today that he performed. But before we do that, we might ask a question first about the miracles of Jesus. Uh, Why? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did he do that? Show who he was, right? That was one reason. What else? His kindness and compassion. Somebody's been paying attention in Bible study, I see here, right? Somebody's been paying attention there, that's right. So yeah, so there were a number of reasons why Jesus performed his miracles, the purpose in doing that. Uh, Of those, first off, is about his identity, is number one, it was to confirm his identity, first off, as the prophesied Messiah, 
You know, there were many prophecies in the scripture that when Messiah came, that he would do these works of wonders, that he would heal the sick, that he would give sight to the blind, that he would give hearing to the deaf. And so part of it then, Jesus was fulfilling messianic prophecy and showing, making a statement that he is indeed the promised Messiah prophesied in the scriptures. In fact, remember when John the Baptist, I love this story in the scriptures here. Here was John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Christ. Remember, what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? That among women, no one greater has there been than John. And yet, we see his humanity, because John is prophes- or John was paving the way for Christ. He then saw Jesus come. He was there. He baptized Jesus rather reluctantly, right? But he baptized Jesus then. And then he encouraged all of his disciples that what to follow Christ because he is the one. He is the Messiah. But things didn't quite go, I think, according to plan for John. Because what happened to John after that? He was arrested. He was imprisoned. And remember, even John himself, the great prophet John, said, sent message to Jesus, um, Jesus, you are the Messiah, right? He wasn't anticipating this turn of events. And what did Jesus say? He said what? Go and tell him what the blind see, the deaf walk. The deaf walk? Well, I'm sure they do. The deaf hear, right? The lame walk. In other words, what? He was fulfilling all of those prophecies of Messiah. So that was first off, as he was confirming his identity as the promised Messiah. Another thing that he was doing, he was confirming his identity as the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was also the Son of God. Jesus was man. Jesus was God. He was the Son of God. You might say, well, There were a number of people who did miracles, right? How did that prove that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, because there's a big difference between being a conduit for God's power to work through you to perform a miracle, like when Elijah or Elisha or Paul or Peter in the New Testament, when they performed a miracle, were they doing the miracle by their power? No, of course not. But what? God was doing the miracle through them. It was God's power. So when Jesus, so that's one thing. It's quite another thing, though, when you do the miracle in your power. And that's Jesus did that, right? And so only God can do that. And so he was confirming his identity as Messiah, confirming his identity as the Son of God. But also then he did that in order to authenticate his message, to be the evidence like, look, you need to listen to me, what I am saying. The miracles were a confirmation of the truthfulness of his message. And in fact, he bases his whole ministry and message and everything on one particular miracle, which was what? The resurrection. The resurrection from the dead was the ultimate authentication of the truthfulness of his message. 
Another reason why he would perform miracles sometimes was to either help bring someone to faith or to strengthen the faith of someone who did believe in him. Now, does this mean that if someone sees a miracle, they're going to believe? No, absolutely not. And in fact, we looked last time, remember what, at these, these towns where the most, Jesus had done most of his miracles there, and what did Jesus end up doing and saying to them? Pronouncing judgment on them because they had rejected him. So doing a miracle, seeing a miracle, was not a guarantee that someone was going to believe. And in fact, sometimes we see that it's the very opposite for some in Scripture, But in this case, though, some people, though, it was to help elicit faith in someone or to strengthen their faith. That was another reason. And then finally, the last one is, as Paul had mentioned here, it was what? Just to simply express compassion. It was an act of compassion in his heart. So he identified himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, It authenticated his message. It helped bring people to faith or strengthen their faith. And it was an expression of compassion as well. All of those were reasons why Jesus did miracles then. So before we look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, a little context here for our text. Uh, This is very early uh, in Jesus' ministry. We saw where uh, he had been baptized by John the Baptist. He went into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And then coming out of that, we saw the first disciples where he had called them. At this point then, he, he had Andrew and Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John with him. They left Judea, the area of the Jordan, and they traveled back north to Galilee. And so that is where we're very early in Jesus' ministry with just a few, a handful of disciples of the 12, just a handful of them who were with him at this point yet. And then we read, John tells us about this incident here at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Let's read here. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Microphone drop at that point, right? It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So in this account, first off, we see a problem. There's a problem. We're told it was the third day, on the third day, that is most likely a reference to after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel to follow him. After that point, they were now following him along with Andrew and Peter and John. And they come to this wedding. They're going to a wedding at Cana in Galilee. As we said a little earlier during our communion time, ancient Jewish wedding practice was is that when a couple was to be married, we'd start off where the groom would pay a price or a dowry for the bride. And then there would be a period of waiting, the betrothal period. They were legally considered husband and wife, but they did not yet live together and they did not consummate the marriage. And then at some point, unexpectedly, the groom would come for his bride and take her to be with him where they would live then in his father's house or their own house then. And there would then be a wedding feast, a wedding celebration that would last several days and sometimes as long as a week. How many of you have been to uh, one or two wedding celebrations here? We got a few of us here, right? Now, I know I probably should not say this, especially since now everything's being recorded and it's on the live stream here, right? And once something's on the internet, it's there forever, right? But I have to tell you, you know, I enjoy weddings. I enjoy the ceremony. I enjoy the joy of that. But you know what? When you've done a few of those, and now it's time, and then you go to the, 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 the to a reception, and you're going to be there sometimes. What maybe it starts in the early evening, and you're there till potentially what eleven, twelve o'clock at night. You're like, right? You've been to so many. You're kind of like, okay, you know, you need to stay for a little while, but eventually it's like you're ready to go. Remember when you were like twenty three? and it was a friend's wedding or something, you, you'd stay till 4 or 5 in the morning if you could. You hated it when you, got, when you had to leave at like midnight, right? Well, you get a, apparently when you get a little older, things change. You know? And now it's just like, now you, you know, you're kind of, it's like 9 o'clock, oh man, right? Who, who can relate? Can I get an amen? All right, okay. 8.30, I know. Well... How would you like it if the wedding reception was a week long, right? That's then. Yeah, that's a long time. Oh, and by the way, who, who, in our tradition, who is responsible for the cost of the wedding and the reception? The bride's family, right? Well, guess how it was in Jesus' day? It was the groom. It was the groom who was responsible for that. How many of you think that's much better that the ladies? Yeah, that's, that's better, right? Guys, how many think it's better with the bride's family? Okay, that's what I thought there. Unless you're the father-in-law of the bride, right? So. So, so here is this wedding feast. It's been going on for some time. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. Jesus was also invited along with his disciples. So what does this tell us? Again, we're not told who it was, but the fact that 
the mother, his mother was there and Jesus was invited implies what? That this wedding was obviously for someone they knew, right? Maybe it was a, a family member or a close friend. And I think there's further evidence of that is that when the wine runs out, Mary is very concerned. Why is Mary concerned? Because probably it's a relative or a close friend. And to have the wine run out, this was an extremely embarrassing situation. You're supposed to provide, and now you've run out. And it was even possible, I don't know that it, that it ever, but technically you could even, a, a, a groom could even be held legally liable for something like that if you ran out. So this was a, an issue, this was a problem, it was an embarrassment here then for that. And so Mary is there, again she's probably a, a relative, a family member, a close friend, she sees the problem, and she does not want this groom to, be, to have this problem here. Like, what am I going to do? We're, we're all out. And Jesus is here, so she says, hmm, Jesus can do something about this, right? Now, there's some question. Did she expect Jesus to perform a miracle or not? Maybe she did, right? It's hard to say because this was his first miracle. He hadn't, he hadn't done miracles up to this point. This was his first. But she certainly knew what he was capable of, wasn't she? But she knew whatever, she knew that she could entrust the problem to him and however he would choose to, he would fix it one way or another, right? I remember, uh, speaking of those days when we were younger and we enjoyed being at wedding receptions until midnight and much later, right? Back in those days, there was a situation like that, and I don't remember the exact details of it now, but it was with some close friends. This was back home down in the Peoria area where I'm originally from, and this was when, remember how, for some reason, we would always have these convoluted plans about, uh, well, let's take your car over there, and then somebody's going to meet you here. We'll leave that car there, and then we'll go here, and we'll come back, and then we'll get your car later. And I don't know, we were always, we were constantly doing things like that. So somehow we were doing that, and the, the bottom line is we ended up in a situation where somebody ended up without their car. Like, they were stuck now somewhere, and they didn't have their car. And this was an issue. And so this was also in the days before cell phones. Remember those ancient days when you couldn't immediately contact someone with a text or a a call or something like that? So you had to wait for them to go home and get a message or, or something like that, right? Well, anyway, this friend and I, we get home and we see this rather stern note from his wife explaining the problem here that in all of our traveling around here and gallivanting, somebody was now stuck somewhere without their car, right? And so she wrote this note here, and and then she wrote in all capital letters at the bottom, fix it, (laughs) underlined, exclamation point, exclamation point, fix it, right? So here's the problem. She brought it to us and said, fix it. Well, she knew we could fix it, and we end up did fixing it. But to this day, that's still a little saying among us. Whenever there's an issue, we might say, fix it, right? Well, here was the problem, and Mary knew that Jesus could fix it. 
But Jesus responds a little bit surprisingly to her. So Jesus uh, or the, Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First off, some people like our modern ears might say, woman, that's an insulting term to call, say, hey, woman. But no, it didn't mean that in their culture. That was actually a title of honor and respect and endearment. He says, what does this have to do with me? Also, a, a common phrase meaning, you know, this, this really... Well, how should I, this really isn't my department here, you know, supplying wine, you know, what, what does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come, meaning what? That the time for him manifesting himself to the, that this wasn't, that the father had a plan and schedule for him, and this really wasn't the plan or the schedule, but Mary was pretty persistent and insistent, it seems. And I love what Mary says. What does she do? She just turns to the servants and says what? Do whatever he tells you. How many of you know that sometimes like a wife or a mother might be pretty insistent on something and they're going to get their way, right? And so she said, Jesus, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And she simply says, eh, do what he says. He'll, he'll do it. And Jesus did out of love for his mother, didn't he? So what was he going to do? How was he going to solve this problem? How was he going to fix it? Well, we see the solution. What does he do? He tells uh, servants there, there were these large stone pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. So we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water that these pots would hold. And they were used for purification rites. As they were part of the Jewish uh, rituals, in their Jewish religious rituals, they were used for ceremonial washing. By the way, how would you like to know that the wine you were drinking came from a pot that was used for washing, ceremonial washings, Right? So anyway, but that's what it was. There they were, and Jesus says what? Fill them up. So here's a 120 plus gallons of water in these pots. And then he instantly, here, and here's the miracle, he instantly transforms that water into wine. The best wine. The best wine. Not, not the cheap, not that, not that box wine stuff, Okay. We're talking the best stuff, you know, from Italy or France and Napa Valley, right? So the best wine, instantly transformed, tells them, take some of that, take it to the master of the feast. There's somebody who's in charge of all of that. And so he does. Takes it to the master of the feast and what? Surprise! Surprise! This is fantastic wine. And he says to the groom, you know, like, why do you save this? This is the best stuff here. Most people, what? They, they put the best stuff out first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the, the, then the poor wine, right? Translation, what? Let people drink and then they have a little much. And then, you know, the more they're, you know, they're not going to notice it's not as good of quality, right? But you've Save the best for last. Why? 
Now, you know, I hadn't really thought of this before until just this week as I was preparing for this message here. I hadn't thought of this, but what did this, what happened with the groom here? What do you think, you know, when the, when the master, the, he, he probably didn't know what was going on with Jesus turning this water into wine. Just all of a sudden, the master of the feast says, hey, what's with all this wine? You saved the, the best for last. I've got to think if I'm the, I'm the groom at this point, I'm probably saying, what? What? Where'd that come from? Who knows? I don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. But Jesus had done it. He probably didn't realize what had happened. And it's like, I don't know, right? So this is the best for last here, he says. And the result then was his glory was manifested and his disciples believed in him. And Jesus calls, or, or John calls this, the first of his signs. So this was his first miracle. Now, John, he uses this word sign. As you recall, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount many of the same events and teachings. Each of the Gospels has things that are unique to that Gospel. There are some things that are contained in all four Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain many of the same events and teachings. But the Gospel of John, the last one written, is over 90% unique. Things that are not found in the other Gospels. And remember what John says even in his Gospel. He says, "What well, there were many other things that Jesus did that why the world itself couldn't contain the books that could be written, Right? That's one of the things I'm looking forward to one day in, in, in when we're present with the Lord is maybe hearing about some of those uh, many other things that Jesus said and did that were not written in the Gospels for us. So here then, he then says this was the first of his signs. John uses the term signs to refer to these miracles, and he records in the Gospel of John eight miracles, eight signs there. Now, why does he use that word sign? Because what does a sign do? A sign gives you information or points you towards something. And so when Jesus did these miracles, there was a reason. There, it wasn't just, um, uh, just to, well, hey, watch what I can do. There was a significance. There was a deeper meaning behind it. To prove that he was Messiah, to prove that he was the Son of God, to authenticate his message, Right? to also what to express compassion that was certainly an act of compassion in this case to elicit belief you know and we see all of those things actually happening here in this case but these signs it's pointing to something what is this miracle pointing to what do you think what is the significance of this miracle now is it the case that Jesus solved a practical problem, helped this groom avoid embarrassment? Certainly he did. He did do that through this. But was that why Jesus did it? Well, it might have been what was kind of the the motivating moment, I guess, if you will, but why he did that. But in doing that, you know how Jesus, he did everything with reason and purpose, didn't he? 
And there was a deeper meaning then to it. And so you might wonder, what was that deeper meaning or purpose? Well, I would suggest a couple of things for us to reflect on. This sign points to something about Jesus, about who he is, and what he came to do. That Jesus is indeed, just as that wine was the best for last, that in Jesus, he is the best for last, (laughs) that this miracle helps to show the superiority of Christ over the law. You know, this is a theme we see very clearly spelled out for us in Scripture, isn't it? That when God gave the law through Moses, did the law ever have any ability to save people, to save you or me? No, the law can't do it. Now, the law is good and righteous and holy. It reveals the holiness of God, the character and the nature of God. It reveals God's holiness But the law also, though, reveals what? Our sinfulness, our fallenness, right? And as such, the law has no power in itself to save us. All it can do, Paul even speaks of this. He says, what? The law can't save. The law, what does the law do? The law, the law kills us, right? And the law, it can even stir up sin in us. So he says, so does this mean the law then is is evil? No, the law is good and righteous and holy. It shows God for who he is. It shows who we are. It shows why we need a savior. But it certainly has no power to save us, does it? And of course, God never intended for the law to save us. He intended all along to send a savior who would perfectly fulfill and obey the law for us on our behalf and then take the punishment for our sins on himself. And so this is showing the superiority of Christ over the law. Why do I say that? Because what, what, where did the water come from that Jesus changed into wine? It came from these ritual purification jars, right? Which I think represent the old, the old way, the old religion, if you will. And Jesus takes something from the old religion, the old ritual, and he transforms it and makes it something wondrous and joyous. So Jesus is superior to the old covenant law. He is the new covenant, the new covenant in his blood. So I think this shows the superiority of Christ over the law. But I think there's also what we see here It shows us then the joy, the joy of Christ's transforming power. How he took that water and in a moment, he transformed it, he changed it into something much better. Now what does Jesus do for you and me? The moment we put our trust in him, he transforms us, he changes us, right? We are instantly transformed. We are new creations in Christ, aren't we? Now, it's true. We spend a lifetime growing into that new creation that we are, but we are instantaneously changed 
the moment we put our trust in Christ, aren't we? And then the day will come when, when, we, when we die or we are taken to him, when we will be in his presence perfectly transformed. Scripture calls that glorified, right? We are perfect in his presence. Our bodies will be changed, resurrected, glorified, bodies like his resurrection body. But when we believe, we are instantly transformed. And that's what Jesus does for us when we put our faith in him. We are instantly changed and transformed by his mighty power. But you notice I said it's the joy, the joy of Christ's transforming power. You know, in the scriptures there, that wine is uh, often associated with joy and celebration. Now, is there abuse of wine that's condemned and is sinful and drunken? Sure, absolutely. But it's also associated with, with joy. And so you see the people who are celebrating here and the joy of this. And you see the, the joy of Christ's transforming power here. So what? So what do you want me to do with this? What difference does this make? Well, I would remind us of this, that Jesus' first miracle demonstrates that God has saved the best for last in Christ and that his transforming power brings great joy. would ask you a couple of questions here. One is, are you following religion or following Jesus? How many of you know there's a difference between the two, right? Following religion is what? Maybe there's a, a set of doctrines that you believe. You may believe it in your mind. There may be certain rituals or practices that you do. But, you know, one can believe a set of doctrines. One can go to church or be involved in various things, but still not truly know the Lord, right? Not truly be transformed within, not be born from above, born again. So I'd ask you, are you following religion or following Jesus? You see, the Jesus is superior to the, the old way, the religion of the day. He comes along and he is now, the, he is the fulfillment of all of that. He is superior to that. Are you following religion or following Jesus, which is personal? It's relational, isn't it? And then something, we're going to pick up a little bit more on this uh, in, in upcoming weeks here. And you might think this is a strange thing to ask, but I want to think, do you think God wants you to be happy? I think he does. But where do we run into trouble with this? Is when we think it's all about us and we think I just, it's all about me and my happiness, right? Well, life isn't about you and your happiness, what? I know. Somebody was just surprised by that, right? Yeah. Life is not about you, all about you and your happiness. But at the same time, I'm going to suggest that if there is no happiness, if there is no joy in Jesus, we've got something wrong, don't we? We've misunderstood something. See, I think God wants us to know his joy. He wants us to experience his joy. And that's something that we are going to be looking at more in upcoming weeks here when we get into the Beatitudes, the blessed are 
joyful are, happy are. What does that mean biblically, to be happy? Not an earthly, sinful understanding, selfish understanding, but a biblical understanding of joy. What does that look like? What is, and does God want that for you? Does God want that for me? See, I think he does. So when he transformed that water into wine, he was showing his superiority to the old covenant, the old religion, and the new, and his transforming power that brings great joy, that he wants us to know his joy. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for more on that upcoming Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in your word. Father, I would pray for each one of us here today that as we reflect upon this, as we reflect upon your word and your truth, that first off, Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise for our hope in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that through faith in him, you have transformed us. You have changed us. You've brought us into relationship with you, Lord, a real relationship with you. And Lord, you want us to know you. And you want us to know your joy. You want us to celebrate in you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that in upcoming weeks here, Lord, that your spirit would continue to speak to us, help us to understand you understand your word better to follow you lord as disciples of jesus learners students who desire above all to know you to do your will to please you and to find our joy in you and we pray these things in jesus name amen thanks for listening to today's message for more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.